Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm your host this week, Amanda Bullock. Literary Arts The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This week's episode features a conversation that took place in front of a live audience at the Portland Book Festival on November 5th, 2022. Portland's hometown hero, Mitchell S. Jackson, interviewed Layla Motley about her debut novel, Night Crawling. Jackson is the author of the novel The Residue Years and the nonfiction book Survival Math. He is the winner of a Whiting Award, and he received the Pulitzer Prize in feature writing for a piece on Ahmaud Arbery. Layla Motley is the former Youth Poet Laureate of Oakland, California. Nightcrawling is her first book, and she was 19 years old when it was published last year. That's right, 19. And Nightcrawling is so, so good and impressively accomplished for any debut novel. We paired Mitchell with Layla because despite their generational differences, they're 30 years apart and they are, of course, at very different points in their careers. But we paired them in conversation because they've both written novels about the beauty and the darkness that exist side by side in their complicated hometowns, Portland and Oakland, respectively. Layla says in their conversation about Oakland, there is nowhere I feel more at home and nowhere I feel less safe, and that those two things can exist at once. Mitchell is one of my very favorite interviewers anytime, anywhere, and it's a pleasure to hear him nerd out about craft with Layla and even get into a bit of a very respectful spat about one of the characters in the book. A quick note for listeners, parts of this conversation touch on mature themes of police brutality and sexual assault that may not be suitable for all listeners. We'll join Layla Motley and Mitchell S. Jackson at Portland Book Festival 2022. Hi, everybody. Glad to see you all here. Thankful to be home. Thank you, Leland, for coming and sharing your brilliance with us. I uh, wanted to start with the title. So Night Crawling, I think it's an important distinction that the book is called Night Crawling, as in like a present participle. Not to get all like English professor on you, <laughs> right? But Night Crawling, as in something that's, that you're doing, an action, versus a night crawler which is an identity or a noun. Um, and it, it seemed like that is very purposeful, uh, that she's not like identified as a person who does that. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, this, this title actually came first, which often is not the case. Um, but I, I know it just popped into my head um, because I wanted this, this whole book to kind of feel like the, the title was reflective of a kind of parallel between its existence as a narrative and the characters in this book. And so I wanted a, a word that wasn't in the dictionary. Um, I wanted a word that felt real, that, um, that was active, and um, that represented the the kind of movement of this book that these characters find themselves in in these waves of life um, often entirely outside of their control and that we recognize the the things done to them but also um, kind of their attempts to maintain agency and that the the word is very much real um, even if it's not validated by by something that we we consider uh, what makes a a word, the dictionary, um, yeah. and so Nightcrawling kind of fit into that. Yeah, I'm all for inventing language, you know? I'm all for it. <laughs> um, I should back up, because I'm just in here talking like, y'all finished the book like I did. <laughs> you about to buy the book, right? Yeah, so uh, I think we should just back up and kind of talk about what this story is about as much as you want to share about the plot and, the, and, and, and even talking about where the, the, 
the true story came for this idea, yeah. Yeah, um, Nightcrawling follows Kiara. Um, she's a 17-year-old black girl from Oakland, and, and it follows her as she finds herself involved with this network of, of Oakland police officers uh, who sexually exploit her and the, the investigation that it results in and kind of this idea of what do we owe to each other and, um, and what do we owe to our kids. I was almost 17 when I started writing this book and it was like four years before that, three or four years before that in 2015, 2016 when um, a case broke in in Oakland um, and in the Bay Area where this young woman, she was a minor at the time, was sexually abused by various Bay Area police officers from um, from different departments in the Bay. And um, there there was this really intense attempt to cover cover up this story, as most are, uh, most cases of police sexual violence. But it was it was leaked and and that is where the distinction comes. It's not that this doesn't happen all the time, it's that it rarely ever becomes public information. And so I was a young teenager at the time, I was 13 or 14, and it, it formed a kind of basis of how I thought about myself and my world and and what it means to be unprotected and and it was years later when I was thinking about writing my next novel that I I knew I wanted to tell the story of of a black teenage girl and give kind of respect to that voice not reduce her to I think sometimes the the simple ways that we think about black teenagers and allow her to have this kind of elaborate in, internal world um, um, and I also really wanted to focus on what does it mean to see black girls as vulnerable and that really closely tied into police sexual violence and what does it mean to be, you know, kind of harmed by the very people we're told are, are supposed to protect us. And so I did a lot of a lot of research on other cases of police sexual violence, which there are so few that are ever public. Um, and so we hear only the most extreme cases of this, but sexual misconduct is, is the second most common form of police misconduct. It happens kind of constantly. Um, and we have no system of reporting. There's, there's no one to report to beyond the police themselves. Um, and, and that's why stories like these are, are even more important that we, we engage with because the silence around it is, is loud. Yeah. Um, for the people that have not been in Portland 20, 30 years, uh, and this reminded me of this book, um, MLK, which is not very far from here, used to be called Union Avenue. Uh, and Union Avenue was our international. Um, and um, back in the 80s, I used to live like two blocks off of uh, Union Avenue and would go to the corner store and see all the women who were working. Uh, and my aunt actually was one of those women uh, and was picked up, I think it might have been 84, and never came home alive. Uh, ended up uh, being found in Overlook Park. And uh, during that time, I also had, like, my father was pimping and my uncles were pimping. All of this to say that there are three generations between us, three decades almost between us. Um, and that seems like we're talking a lot about cycles of poverty. So I wondered what you, but then, you know, if you talk to a racist, it's black pathology, right? And so I wonder what this book is saying about cycles of poverty versus or in relationship to pathology? Mm, I love this question. Um, it's so interesting because International wasn't called International for a long time too. It's mm -hmm. um, East 14th mm -hmm. and they, ch they changed the name around 2012. So uh, also a parallel there. Yeah. And um, I wonder what city planning went into that. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think I think a lot of of also the the conversations that I've had about night crawling end up being um, kind of this bridging the gap between the way that that a lot of people see sex work as um, as kind of a, a black hole, and so much of that is in this pathologization of of black life and of black city life in particular. Um, this idea that we are unhappy with our worlds. Um, and part of what I wanted to do with this book is, is allow there to be like 
breath and life and um, and as much joy as there is grief in in Kiara's kind of relationship to to the city and to East Oakland um, because we don't need to pretend that there aren't there's not a lot of harm in that yeah. but we also need to recognize that there is also a lot of joy in it and there is nowhere in the world I feel most at home mm -hmm. than in East Oakland and there is also nowhere in the world I feel less safe mm, and wow. those two things can exist at once and I think we often have these just narrow views of of historically black cities, um, historically black neighborhoods where they can be nothing but violent. Um, and that violence is, indicates an exclusion of hope mm. and of family and of love. Um, and it just doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, man. I want to stick with this idea of home. I'm not going to give too much context for this line because um, y'all should read it. Um, <laughs> But there is a line uh, in which Kiara is thinking to have lost a roof and found a home. Um, and I wondered if you can talk a little bit more about that idea, to have lost a roof but found a home without giving them too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do I do this without spoilers? <laughs> um, uh, the catalyst for the book is a, a rent increase notice on Kiara's um, door, and they, her and her family have been in this apartment for decades. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it was, it was really important for me to start there because I don't think we can talk about 2015 Oakland without talking about displacement mm -hmm. and, and what it means to, to like grasp onto a home that doesn't want you um, and and kind of as I was contemplating that I mean there's so much wrapped into it right because I think that we often believe that houses physical structures are synonymous with this idea of, of shelter and and safety and home and they can be they can at least help um, and I think often many of our, our actual physical houses are the least important thing about um, being at home. Yeah. And as much as Kiara is like, struggling throughout this process to say, like, how can I keep a roof over my head? A lot of that struggle is also, how can I find a way to belong in this city? Mm -hmm. um, and, and she ends up kind of finding some form of, of belonging. Um, and at the same time, there's no roof. And that matters because this book is not, um, it doesn't intend to provide us false hope um, that, you know, you work for months and months and months and you, you give everything you have and it means that you're going to, you know, have a roof and food and all of the, the things that we need to survive because it's, it's, not, it's not a zero-sum game. We can't, we can't end up always in the place that, that we're told if you, if you pull yourself up, if you do the work that you're going you're gonna to yeah, end up there. Bootstrap. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's not that. We ain't got no boots. <laughs> um, you know, I'm going to stay there a second because to me, Oakland looms so large in my mind. And I cannot think about Oakland without thinking about the Black Panther Party. Um, yeah, shout out to the Black Panthers. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all got the Black Lives Matter sign out there. Shout out to the Black Panthers. Um, it, it made me think, though, when I think of Black Panthers, I'm always thinking about the 1960s. Um, but uh, you talk, one of the characters, the father figure here, was in the Panthers in the 70s. Yes. Uh, and I think that's a really important distinction because that's a different iteration of the Black Panthers. So I wonder, what does that later generation of Black Panthers mean to you? And why did you have him there versus having him earlier in their kind of more no well-known uh, era? Part of it is because my my dad moved to Oakland in the <laughs> 70s, um, so it's kind of the the historical context I grew up with. Mm -hmm. um, but another part of it is because we rarely talk about the 70s yeah. in relation to the the Panthers, and it was a different time. And there's a lot that happened between you know 1970 and the the kind of dissolution of of the party, um, and and there's also a a major role 
role that women had, especially in that that 70s decade of of the Panther Party. Elaine Brown, um, she ended up taking over as as the the leader of the party, and we rarely talk about about the the kind of power struggle implicit in in a in a movement that was was based in misogyny, um, whether we want to believe it or not, and. Part of what I wanted to kind of talk about is the the impact, the reverberations of the the formation of the relationship between uh, policing and the Black Panther Party, and how it kind of continued in this cyclical nature throughout the the next few decades into the relationship that Kiara ends up having with with policing, um, and they're very much informed by each other and this idea that the police in Oakland fear us as much as we fear them, um, partially because the resistance of, of the party to, to policing was, I mean, it was, it was huge and it was, it was brave and it was fearless and, and because of the, the lack of assault rifles and, and all of these other conditions that, that made it possible for the Black Panther Party to be what it was, the, the police have continued to become more and more robust in Oakland um, and almost believe that every time there's a protest or a reckoning there, they're facing the party again, um, and and if you're you're ever in Oakland during a, a season of protests, um, you'll feel that you'll feel the fear um, on both sides and the rage on both sides. And so it was really important to me that we have that context kind of embedded in the story, and also that you know this movement represented change and hope and like kind of a new a new world mm-hmm. and it still fell apart at a certain point you know yeah. um i mean so many members of the party were forced into exile or killed or incarcerated and that framing also changes how we're able to think about resistance yeah two two things that struck me one you talked about the season of protests Right, which means we're in, caught in this again cyclical nature of things to be protested. Um, but also thinking about the Panther Party, one of the things that's well known about them is their breakfast, right? Mm-hmm. Their breakfast program, which is a, as we can call it, maybe bootstrap program, right? Like mm-hmm. do for self. Still there, yeah. Um, which made me think about the idea of philanthropy, mm-hmm. right? Like they were doing it for themselves, by themselves, by any means necessary, really. Um, but then, you know, on the flip side of that is like white people with means helping out. Uh, and so um, that happens to Kiara, right? Um, not to give away too much, but she is a recipient of what we could call philanthropy. And uh, thinking about the, a, a school of thinking that, that says that philanthropy is an arm of white supremacy, right? That like just the status quo keeping things going, giving their kind of uh, disadvantaged, begotten resources where they want. Um, and so I wonder, um, there's this line in there. Uh, no, I wonder what you think about that, what you, what you mm-hmm. were trying to say about yeah. charity. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think this gives too much away, but there's, there's a lawyer, Marsha, mm-hmm. um, I think she comes about around the middle of the book mm-hmm. and she um, kind of is a, a pro bono attorney mm-hmm. for Kiara um, in in the, the case that follows. And <coughs> I won't say too much about that, but Marsha as a character, um, I kind of wanted to take this trope of, of the white lawyer, the white woman who comes in mm-hmm. and believes that she is the hero of the story and, and kind of flip it around and see what happens when in the outcome of that, yeah. when she can't save um, this this person who's very much a product of of a system much larger than this this single white woman who <laughs> believes that she can do it yeah. and and I think that when when we kind of experience the the white savior trope in in art we often come out with this idea that that this person was critical to the success of of our, our protagonist right um, and with Kiara. 
she ends up being kind of the least important part of of this. And but I think that Marsha's narrative mm-hmm. would would say that she was she was necessary, that she mm-hmm. um, she did good work. And yeah. um, and depending on what perspective you see it from, yeah. you know, we're gonna get a, a different view of that. And we see this whole book through Kiara's eyes. Yeah. And so we see Marsha come in. We see her take over we see her introduce and like kind of put her ideals and morals and ideas of what is good or bad what is right or wrong on Kiara and then walk out when things don't go the way she wanted them to um and I think that that teaches us something more about what it means to think you're helping um what it means to be an ally and to to be an ally when it's convenient and and not when it's hard. Yeah, yeah. There's a conversation between Marsha and Kiara, um, and uh, at one point, I think she's trying to console her. Uh, Marsha's trying to console her, and she says, "If you did something wrong, then so did Harriet Tubman and Gloria Steinem and every other woman who did what she had to do, even when it wasn't respected." I think this is also something you do really well because she means this as a compliment. Like she's framing what Kiara is doing with these historical figures. Uh, but then Kiara's like, I ain't buying that. She like she's referencing these women as if it's proof that Marsha doesn't uh, she doesn't understand what what she's been through. Um, and so that got me to thinking about the divide between feminism and womanism. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you were trying to say something about that divide. Yes. Okay. You're the only person that has ever caught this or asked me about it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I was really intentional when I thought about who who does Marsha see as an important figure, Not right? Angela Davis. No, it's... <laughs> and, way to Terry Tubman. And if you, if you listen to, to white people talk about historical, black historical figures mm-hmm. and black activists... Harriet Tubman and um, often Toni Morrison, which is an interesting one, yeah. come up um, the most. And and I think that there's so much to be said about that. Um, but in this context, you know, Kiara is is experiencing her life as as the person living it, and Marcia sees it as an act of of the political and. Um, and I think that there becomes this like this bridge of, of knowledge and experience that they cannot cross because if Marcia sees these women as the most important figures in history, then how is she supposed to see Kiara as a person? Yeah. 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 And and I mean I also think that so much of of our conversations around feminism and you know intersectional feminism often um we get so wrapped up in the idea of feminism as um as kind of a a politics of women's rights and i think we rarely think of feminism in the way that that you know so audrey lord thought of feminism or womanism which is is kind of recognizing our our current positions, but also the ways that we we ourselves continue to play into the web of misogyny and and how you you really can't dismantle misogyny unless you also look towards the way that um, that it shows up in in the civil rights movement. And so that the idea that we see these as distinct movements mm-hmm. it, it can't exist yeah. if we if we want rights because rights are what we we go to when we think about you know like voting as uh the most important tool in in like political participation and that ties into the idea of politics as something that is entirely theoretical and not the way in which we as people live our lives um, and the the reverberations of of our belief systems on the way that we interact with the people we love and um, and how how we even begin to think about who we love and why Um, and and so I think with this book I I really didn't want to impose 
my own politics on these characters because in many ways like it doesn't matter um what matters to them is the next thing they have to do to survive and that is politics that is what that is Uh, whether we say it or not and Marsha's ideas about who Kiara is and who she is going to be to Kiara mm-hmm. are rooted in um, in her idea that like she can act out politics mm. instead of already implicitly participating in them. Yeah, I love that. I love that idea. Um, well, I love that you're exploring that idea. I don't love that that idea exists. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> distinction, distinction. Um, man, you know, I'm all for getting on rapping, you know, making it, getting it how you live. Uh But uh, I was very frustrated with Kiara for her um, unwavering empathy Mm -hmm. and understanding for her brother. Um, Because, well, I should back up and say that um, Uncle Ty, uh, Marcus, to some degree, Cole, all of these men feel very selfish. Well, they are selfish. They don't seem. They are selfish. Um, And I wanted to pair that with uh, Kiara's mother tells her that blood is everything, right? And then she actually questions that notion, the idea that blood is everything. So I wanted to pair that with this idea that the men seem to have their own agendas and not have Kiara's best interests at heart with this idea that blood is everything and to leave that kind of open for you to share what you were um, suggesting to us. Mm, um, I mean, I think men are selfish. Um, (laughs) I have yet to meet a man who when it comes down to what is important to him, Mm -hmm. that he would ever choose what is important to the woman next to him. Mm. Um, I mean, it's just true. And I think that there are, there are a lot of reasons for this, right? And I think that we, we often like blame individual men. And I mean, yeah, there's room for that too. But, um, <laughs> but also men, especially black men, are taught that, you know, you want to survive. You look out for yourself first. Mm. And, and that success is closely tied to the the things that they do and um, and whether or not they're valuable to kind of white society and and that's why so many black men decide let me you know go into sports let me go into music um, let me create something that can be consumed and that is what is going to make me feel like I belong and there is no room to care for women in that. There's just no room because um, part of the idea that that you have to to create something to produce, to be famous, to to be big means that you you take up all the space in the room, um, and your needs have to come first. And we see this play out with with Marcus and with Uncle Ty, um, and and even in the relationships that Kiara has with men that that we might see as like more loving, like Tony maybe. Um, but that also, in the end, are about what they want and not what she wants. Um, and really, they're, Tony? Tony's asking for something from her. But he keep coming around here and getting nothing. No, he's not. But he's nothing. asking. And I think that Tony won't give up because Tony doesn't care whether she wants it or not. He's like, he doesn't care. He'll keep coming back to her. And he'll do things for her, mm-hmm. but he believes it's a transaction and that she has to do something back for him. And the, the first interaction we see is that he goes, well, you have to come over to my house yeah. then. Mm-hmm. And if you, like, if you want that from me, you have to come over to my house. And she's like, no. And she doesn't. And he does something for her anyway. And then the next time he's like, okay, I'll come with you on the street. Yeah. But like... You have to let me take care of you. You have to. You have to. Yeah. You have to be my woman. And mm-hmm. she says no, and he he's pissed off, and he goes home. But what about Tony at the end, though? Tony at the end is still saying, "Here, I have, 
I have something for you. Yes. But I need you to want me. I need you to want me to be here. I want to show up for you. Yeah. You have to want me back. Right. Now, you wrote the book. Hey. But. And Tony's a good you guy. You do say that Tony would keep showing up. He will if, keep showing even up. Even if he doesn't get anything. You say but that. But he'll keep asking. She says that. She says that. Yes. He okay. will keep showing up whether he gets anything and at the end of the day, yes. he's always going to be pissed off at her for not giving him something in return. Fair enough, fair enough. It's your book. Your book. I mean, you can tell me your opinion. Um, I, think, I think also with the other men uh -huh. in the story with Marcus, people are normally pissed off at Marcus. Yeah. And I, I think that's fair. Yes. Um, I, I, we should be, but also like we watch Kiara continue to go like, Oh, but it's okay. Yeah. You know, I love you. And um, and I think you're saying that you're a little upset that she doesn't just say no, like yeah. get it together. But I also think that there's this idea that black women are, are kind of forced into playing along with where in order to for us to feel like, oh, we're going to be taken care of, we're going to be loved, we have to first attend to the man's needs mm -hmm. and um i mean i even think that when when we look at police violence and narratives around uh, women in in regards to police violence we are often the people who are put in front of the camera and told to give a statement about the men we loved yeah. and rarely are we ever asked like are you okay um and I also think in around sexual violence, black women are taught that, you know, you don't give up a black man. You yeah. don't, no matter what. And so under that kind of ideology, Kiara would never say that Marcus has done something wrong because he is the only person who's going to love her. He's her family. And, and kind of in, in black code, you're supposed to stick by your family first. Um, and so her mother has this idea that like blood is everything. Yeah. Um, but it's not really about genetics, right. is it? Because right. kin is kin. It doesn't matter how related you are. It matters that you are supposed to be loyal yeah. to the men around you first and foremost before you're loyal to yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that we could argue that the strongest relationship is between her and the little boy. Between right? her and but Trevor. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's family. Um, back to Oakland a little bit. Uh, so there's a point at which you mentioned Fruitvale, just mm -hmm. in passing, really. But I cannot read the name Fruitvale without thinking about the film Fruitvale Station, Ryan Coogler. Mm -hmm. um, and that also, then that made me think about other kind of, the way that, Oakland has been in our public conscious in art, right? So in the scene in Black Panther, mm -hmm. uh, Tommy Orange is very, who blurbed you, great blurb, um, for his book, right? And, and thinking about how is your book in conversation with those other cultural touchstones about your home city? Mm. Um, blind spotting to another one. Um, yeah, I mean, artists come out of Oakland. Like, there are so many of us. Yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting because every single one of those examples is they're black men or they're men, they're yeah, men, they're yeah, men of color. Yeah. And I think we rarely get ideas about Oakland, views of Oakland from women and from women in art, even though we, there, are, there are many artists mm -hmm. out of Oakland, Kehlani, Zendaya, yeah. like there are black women mm -hmm. coming out of, of Oakland and continuing on to be artists, but very few kind of reflect back Oakland to us, I think because we are, are left out of narratives and depictions of Oakland. And so why, why would we you know, kind of turn back to uh, an image of a city that has never claimed to love us? And I think part of what I was thinking about as I built out Oakland was what does it mean for me to like write us in? Um, um, and and to acknowledge the the ways in which the city you know does neglect us and also the the like deep love that we have for it um, Fruitvale is, is such a big part of that I think partially because it's one of the more intact parts of Oakland um, 
post 2012, and um, and so it was important to me to. I mean, I grew up in East Oakland, so um, to to have that kind of be our our basis, our foundation, and. I mean, I also think always of Fruitvale Station, um, and I often think of Oscar Grant's mother, mm. who has been such such an active part of of Oakland, um, and and who has continued to fight to keep her son's, yeah. you know, name and story alive, um, and whose grief is is just so palpable, um, and I I think. Every time I've heard her speak, there is this this sense of of like rage, but also urgency and and like a she's not giving up, like she's not going to stop. And I think that that is something that's true among a lot of people from Oakland. We're we're kind we're fighters, you yeah. know. And I think that's also part of why so many great artists come out of Oakland. Is it, it takes a lot to get in an industry in an arts industry, and it it takes a lot then to to fight for stories about Oakland, which like people often just don't want to hear um, yeah. and really any stories about historically black cities. I just had E-40, Too Short, and Sugar Tea in my head. I don't yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all know nothing about Sugar Tea. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very, very impressed with your level of craft. Just I'm switching to writer talk, y'all. So you know, I want to step out on the writer talk side. You're going to have to do it. Um, but the way that you build suspense, the way that you withhold certain bits of information, um, you know, we talk about building suspense, like you can withhold it as long as they don't get too mad, right? And then you got to give it to them and then you withhold something else. Like it's, it, to me, it feels very much a person in command of their craft. And uh, I read somewhere, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you wrote your first novel at 14. Yeah, clap for that, clap for that, yeah, clap for that, yeah. Clap for it. I'll tell y'all what I was doing at 14, sneaking into the Lloyd Center Theater over there. Two, three, two or three shows. Um, you wrote your second novel at 16. Is this right? 15. 15, oh, excuse me, excuse me. Excuse me. And then that you wrote this novel, this is your third one, over a summer. Yeah, 16 okay. to 17, yeah. I'm, I'm just going to make my jealousy and admiration palpable for you all um, because it is. Um, I want to know what did novel one and novel two teach you that is in novel three? Oh, God. So much. Um, writing a book's really hard, and it's really long, and no one teaches you how to write a book. Uh, even if you're in creative writing classes, no one's teaching you how to write a novel. Um, and so a lot of those first two books were like, how do I do this? Um, and that first one was... Uh, uh, um, it, it was kind of a... What was it titled? No, 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 give no, it no, to no, us? no, right. no, okay. no, no, That's no. in the archives, y'all. Y'all gonna have to wait for the archives for that one. No, it will never, it will <laughs> never come out. You will never hear the title. Um, that one, it was, it was like a, a shorter, like maybe 70,000 words. Oh, okay. Um, and, and I learned a lot about um, how to choose characters and, um, and, stick with them there was a very large cast of characters in that first book um and we we didn't really have like a deep understanding of anyone and so then that second book um was meandering i okay. guess is the it was like poetry nonstop, okay. and i think a huge part of that was because i was i was doing so much poetry mm -hmm. at that time and so it was just like every sentence was poetry and i couldn't even get through reading it like i mm. couldn't i couldn't do it okay. um and so then for for night crawling i kind of went okay who's my who's my person who's mm -hmm. my main character and then how can I scale back the poetry? And those were the two things that I went in knowing um, that I needed to work on. Mm -hmm. And then after that first draft, it was, oh my God, it was just like 
this morning I woke up and <laughs> and that was the whole thing and I I didn't have really a sense of plot okay. or structure so um, I learned that in revisions for okay. night crawling um, and now now I plot how many revisions mm -hmm. are we talking about um I lose track maybe like 10 okay 10, okay 15 okay. I, I love mm -hmm. that I love that yeah um, I want to talk to some of the writers in the room and just share probably what may be the greatest lesson that I learned in a classroom setting. I had written um, a sentence in a class with this guy named Gordon Lish, who I hope is still alive. Uh, and the sentence was, I'm turning this towards you. This ain't about me. I'm turning towards you. I ain't that dude. I'm gonna turn it. Uh, the sentence was, uh, she told me to hold it for safekeep. And the guy was like, cool, I like that sentence. He's like, what's the next one? She told me for, to hold it for safekeep, and then she said, bring it back. I, she said, cool, read another sentence. I said, rent money from under the mattress. And he said, stop, Jackson. Don't you ever ask for anyone's sympathy on the page. Do you hear me? Don't you ever ask for it. And I realized, post that comment, right, that there was me beseeching for someone to feel sorry for me in that line, or it could be seen as that way, right? The rent money for another mattress. And one of the great things about this book is that these people are going through so much trauma, but it is not sentimentalized. And I wanted to know what craft things are you doing to keep that from happening? A lot of it is in kind of this formation of a complete life and a complete person, right? Um, and the the worst thing you can do is dehumanize a character. And I think we rarely talk about how you dehumanize a character. And I think one of one of the biggest ways is by removing the spectrum of their experience, because as as people as humans we we have, you know, we ride waves, right? And we are always in pursuit of something. We want more than we have. It's it's a human instinct. And so it was really important for me to in add into all of these characters, like they experience these really mundane moments of making pancakes and they experience grief and they experience um, a, a lot of like delight and they experience like fatigue. There's so much that, um, that they they go through that allows us to like breathe with them because as as people we need space to breathe and and we also need to always want something and and so desire like desire mapping each character has has a want in every every scene and then like an overarching one and um that's a lot of the the kind of like craft element of it. Um, I also journal from my main character's perspective. And because I write in first person, I, I think it's really important for me to get like just deep into their psyche. Um, and, and that helps me to, to understand them beyond the way that a stranger might because we have this beautiful opportunity that we, we don't normally have to get inside someone's head, get inside their entire world. And, um, and in order to do that, we have to know the things about them that they're not gonna tell you. That's kind of how I, I start with, with every book and every character. Yeah, I feel like those are, those are the major ones. That was free game, y'all. Mm -hmm. I had to pay 100K in two master's <laughs> programs to get that. I want my money back. They still, I'm still giving them the money back. Y'all want to contribute by all means. Um, <laughs> there is a lot of contact with the police. Um, and uh, it reminds me of reading this summer about the um, Supreme Court weakening Miranda rights. Uh, their ruling that uh, cops can't be sued for failing to Mirandize suspects. Right, so if you can imagine a world in which a cop could just say, oh yeah, I didn't do it, and there's nothing, no consequence for not Mirandizing people, which is in your novel, she's, I don't know if I'm giving away too much. That um, idea is present in this book. Uh, uh, but further, um, Marsha, who, I'm asking a lot of questions about Marsha, I must really like her. Um, Kiara was thinking about Marsha 
and she says, I don't think Marsha really gives a shit about justice. Um, and I should reiterate that Marsha is a lawyer and that Kiara is thinking, this is the woman that's supposed to be helping her. I don't think she gives a shit about justice, which made me wonder what you are saying about the legal system, police, lawyers, our criminal justice system. Now look, big, broad question to land it's a on. big one, <laughs> yeah. Um, I knew from the very beginning I did not want us to find hope in the justice system. And and that was kind of the, I mean, I knew, I knew someone was gonna ask me to change the ending. Yeah. And I, I was like, I'm not, I'm not gonna do it because mm -hmm. if, we, if we attempt to find resolution in a system that has never given us it, then it, it falsifies the whole, the whole story. Um, and so I think, I think a huge part about it is like, the justice system doesn't doesn't run on justice. Um, it runs on profit, and it runs on status. And when we look at even all of the cops in this book, they're um, they're addressed by their badge numbers and not their names. And this was kind of an attempt to flip around the ways that um, that we often talk about. Um, victims of police violence and and the the cops that kill us and that's often um this focus on like we get the whole story of the cop's life we get pictures of them with their families and we get like one one picture of of whatever black person died and one thing about their life one one little fact, um, whatever it may be, and all of the the characters in this, the black characters in this book are are named, and all of the cops are given badge numbers, partially because we need to recognize that in in a system of policing, who you are is entirely irrelevant because you are consumed by the the power of of status and of um, of being lawless, you can do anything and there are no repercussions. And um, when we don't have consequences, we our egos blow up. And, um, and so you are the uniform. You are not the person behind the uniform because there, there is no space for that. And that is why policing is so scary because we can't understand police as people. It takes out this kind of idea of the good apple or the bad apple um, because the, the job does something to you. It just does. Um, and, and so a lot of the, the kind of conversation in the book around justice is, is that this is a, a system that plays out in people's lives but is very much more about um, the largeness of it, how inevitable it all is, um, and how justice is, is the least important thing. I had in my head while I was reading probably the last third of the book, I don't know if anyone has seen that Brian Stevenson TED Talk from, I don't know if he's given to, but from years back, and he says, uh, we have a system of justice that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Uh, and I thought, um, there's a moment where Kiara is thinking um, about victimhood, criminality, and womanhood, um, and, and feels like a sad place to land, but I wonder what you were um, saying about that, right? Like wonder whether she's gonna be considered one or the other versus the other. I mean, she becomes just a sex worker. Yeah. And in this country, sex workers are, you know, treated as criminals in, mm -hmm. in a criminalized profession. These cops, I mean, they take advantage of the fact that they can do whatever they want because because it is technically illegal mm -hmm. for her to exist yeah. um, and to exist on that street in that moment. And, um, and so that becomes her, her most like, core identity um, within the context of, of kind of the, the justice system and, and the cops, um, despite how it is, is kind of her, her last identity in her own world. Yeah. We got some questions out there. Somebody got a mic in their hand? Okay, in the middle. There's a couple. 
the most difficult section to get to. <laughs> Would you be willing to read a section of your book? Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> I forgot all about the reading. Um, okay, I'll read, I'll read a short one because we're almost out of time. Um, okay, this is from a section about Oakland with Kiara and Ale walking down the street. Ale loops her arm around my shoulders and pulls me in, lifting her skateboard into the air and sighing. Ain't it beautiful? She shouts into the open air, and I twist my head around to take it all in. The construction still lines the alley, bang-banging wood into more wood, and I swear it's like the city is spiraling around us, skyline popping up a glorious portrait of windows and wheels that don't gotta be as large as they are. Ale's arm around me makes me wanna skip, lift my knees to the sky, the way we sway together. Oakland doesn't operate on a grid. We wind here. The streets pulling us closer to the bay, to where salt melts with street and bikes turn to trucks that moan and thrust forward at every light. Then they push us back toward the buildings, where shouts line the perimeter of the sidewalks. And with Ale here, I don't bother trying to decipher what they're saying or who they're saying it to. Just let the noises scatter like chunks of asphalt out the road. I find my favorite murals, new swirls added to the backgrounds, bordered in tags. That was Layla Motley, author of Night Crawling, with Mitchell S. Jackson in conversation at Portland Art Museum as part of Portland Book Festival on November 5th, 2022. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project, it's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Liguori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swim. Special thanks to Literary Arts Marketing staff, Jyoti Roy and Hope Levy, and to the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here. <laughs>